All right, good morning. Um, I'm Ramon Belagamba. I'm a pastor and intern here at Christ Central, and I'm in a, a part of the University City Community Group, and I reside in the Northwest Parish. Um, I'll be doing today's scripture reading. All right, today's scripture reading is from 1 Kings 16, verses 8 through 34, ESV. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Eli, the son of Bashai, began to reign over Israel in Tirzah. And he reigned two years, but his servant Zimri, commanded, commander of half of his chariots, conspired against him. When he was in Tirzah, drinking himself drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household in Tirzah, to Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. When he began to reign, as soon as he had seated himself on, the throne, on his throne, he struck down all the house of Basha. He did not leave him a single male of his relatives or his friends. Thus, Zimri destroyed all the house of Basha according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet, for all the sins of Basha and the sins of Eli his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Eli and all that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Tirzah, now the troops were encamped against the Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. And the troops who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired, and he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Amri the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Amri went up from Gibbethon and all of Israel with them, and they besieged Tirzah. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. Now the rest of the acts of Zamri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath, to make him king, and make him king, and he followed Amri. But the people who followed Amri overcame the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnath. So Tibni died and Amri became king. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah, Amra began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tirzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemir for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemir, the owner of the hill. Amri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. For he walked in all the way of Jeroboam, 
the son of Nabot, and in the sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger by their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Amri that he did and the might he showed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? And Amri slept with his fathers and was buried in Samaria, and Ahab his son reigned in his place. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Amri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Amri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Amri, did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Naboth, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of, of Bethel built Jericho. He laid his foundation at the cost of um, Abiram, his firstborn, and set up his gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segeb, Gub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Once again, I'm Howard Brown, the pastor here at Christ Central Church. And um, thank you. It's a new Mr. Bobo over there. You said, good morning. Thank you. You look a little different than Mr. Bobo, but man, speaking of Mr. Bobo, we are still looking to hear about um, what we're going to do. Um, there, has, there have been some ups and downs um, concerning his um, funeral arrangements, and um, I will let you know more about that. But uh, we may have to do our own service for Mr. Bobo, and we're going to talk as a staff in session and, and work that out, but there have been some disheartening things, to say the least, about um, how things have been handled, and I will let you know. So we have not forgotten um, our dear brother, and we will do our best to remember him and celebrate his life. Amen? Amen. All right. All right. As we continue in our sermon series again in the Book of King, today's chapter is a survey of sorts a survey of four northern kings who ruled during a 12-year period or so in the 9th century B.C. And a little background, the kingdom of Israel, for those who are here new today, the kingdom of Israel has split into two, north and south. And the northern kingdom is having a hard time getting established. And that is due in large part to, as the Bible explains, the idolatry of their kings. And by idolatry, I mean having and depending and living for another God other than God, the God of the Bible. Trusting and dependent and addicted or seeking to please anything or anyone else in a way only the Lord should be pleased and trusted. Idolatry is taking that thing that is competing with God's place in your life and giving it a home, a place, a a way to get access to you and for you to get access to it. Idolatry happens, also happens, 
when we use the idol, whatever it is, to tell the real God of the Bible who he is and where his place should be in light of our idol or idolatry. The idol worshiper lives according to the rules and desires and needs that the idol calls for in their life. And so an idol can be a person, place, thing, emotion, comfort, competing truth, pleasure. It is the reason you and I truly get up and feel good about ourselves and what deep down motivates and drives our thinking and decision-making and behaviors in the light and in secret. Plain and simply, an idol is a fake God with real effects. And here's the hard part that we brought up in past sermons recently about idolatry. Idols are everywhere, visible and invisible for the taking and a temptation and fault of every single one of us in here. No one escapes the draw and drain of idolatry. And these kings we have as a survey in today's chapter are clear examples of what happens when we fail to turn to the saving grace of God from our idols. For these kings back then, when it came to idolatry in each of their lives, much like each of our lives, it is the same story, right? The same situation, the same stuff over and over in a cycle of brokenness that we need to be delivered from. And so there are three things from this chapter I want us to accept today so that the cycle of idolatry can be interrupted and broken in our lives. First, that idolatry is harmful. Secondly, that the Lord calls us to repentance. And finally, that the Lord remains as the only redeemer. Idolatry is harmful. The Lord calls us to repentance. And he remains as the only redeemer. Now, what is clear from each of these many biographies is that these kings and their kingdoms are driven and ruined by their idolatry. A harmful idolatry. Because, again, for you people who like taking notes, subpoint A, it starves the heart. And harmful subpoint B, because it leaves an empty legacy. Look at King Elah here in verse 8 through 9. In the 26th, 6th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, began to reign over Israel in Terzah, and he reigned two years. But his servant, Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him. When he was at Terzah, drinking himself, that's, that's Elah drinking himself, drunk in the house of Arza, who was over the household in Terzah, Zimri came in and struck him down and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and he reigned in his place. And then look at King Zemri, the one who murdered drunk King Elah, and then killed all of his descendants. Look at him. Look, look at his story in verse 15. In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zemri reigned seven days in Terzah. Seven days, y'all. Now the troops were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, and the troops were encamped, were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired, he has killed the king. Therefore all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. So Omri went up from 
Gibbethon, and all Israel with him, and they besieged Terza. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Then look at when Omri becomes king in verse 21. Then the people of Israel divided into two parts. Half the people followed Tidney, the son of Ganath, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri overcame the people who followed Tibni, right? The son of Ganath. So Tibni died, and Omri became king in the 31st, sorry, in the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah. Omri, God, his words are killing me. Omri began to reign over Israel, and he reigned for 12 years. Six years he reigned in Terzah. He bought the hill of Samaria from Shemir for two talents of silver, and he fortified the hill and called the name of the city that he built Samaria after the name of Shemir, the owner of the hill. And then let's drop down to verse 31 about King Ahab. And as it as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ithbeal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He created an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hiel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abaron, his first son, firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest, Sagad. Let me break down what you just heard, in case you didn't gather it. The kings of Israel were a hot mess. The first was an alcoholic deserter of his men. The second, a suicidal murderer. The third, a relationship bridge-burning workaholic. And then the fourth, a child-sacrificing neglectful father, ethnic and national turncoat sellout. And according to the Bible, each worse and more dysfunctional than the one before them. Why? Why were they so dysfunctionally ambitious? Some of y'all like to say they were hungry. They were thirsty. They was dogs looking for a bone somewhere, right? Mice looking for the hidden cheese. They were desperate. And a better word, the word I want to use is they were starving. Starving. Somewhere deep in their hearts, they were so hollowed out that they turned to self-deprecating, other-demeaning, community-destroying, destructive, self-loathing, having no sense of humanity or human pride kind of behavior. And the description that follows each one of them tells us why their lives are so hungry, starved, and thus taking, leading them to take desperate and foolish, and in some cases, deadly actions in their lives. Look at verse 18. We'll use Zimri as an example, because it's the same story every time. So there's in verse 18. I'm going to just jump down to there. And when Zimri saw that the city was taken, he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house over him with fire and died. Now look at verse 19. Why? Because of his sins that he committed, doing evil in the sight of the Lord, walking in the way of Jeroboam, and for his sin which he committed, making Israel to sin. 
And the same stuff for every one of these kings and the same stuff for every one of us. Idolatry and a sure sign that you and I are engaged in some sort of idolatry, holding dear something or necessary or ultimately motivating and guiding other than the Lord and his grace is that we are ever eating, ever working, ever pleasuring, ever seeking comfort, ever working to finally reach the top, ever trying to keep up with others, right? Ever trying to fulfill our dream and destiny to never be to just be like these kings, hungrier and hungrier and more desperate and more empty with every attempt, doing crazy things to get that feeling, to get that fulfillment. And like every one of these kings, you die. Ecclesiastes, King Solomon said, it's vanity. You go, you work hard, you try hard, you die, and everything you work for gets left to somebody else. Well, some of y'all left for someone else to deal with. Idolatry and idols we serve, the Bible teaches us, are nothing at all, the Bible says. What is an idol? Nothing at all. And they leave us longing, believing they can give us only what the Lord truly gives and fills and comforts us with, which can be very discouraging in our world, because especially in a city like Charlotte. Because idolatry, hear me now, it mimics and is rewarded by the masses. It is rewarded with more, some of you, with more zeros on your paycheck. It is rewarded with more square footage. It is rewarded, right, by more beauty, by people seeing, wow, you look good, right? It is rewarded with, as, and, and, and it mimics and, as success and ambition and drive and tenacity when it is really starvation of the soul. And you and I won't and can't know the difference unless and until we see and submit our soul hunger to the Lord. And the disappointment of idolatry, apart from starving the heart, is subpoint B, it leaves an empty legacy. Look at verse 13 again after Eli dies. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Eli, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to, uh, to anger with their idols. And then verse 14, this is the important part. Um, now the rest of the acts of Eli and all that he did, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the Kings of Israel? Right? And then again, look, look, look at Zimri in verse 20 after he sins and, and does everything wrong. Verse 20, now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the conspiracy that he made, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the King of Israel after he burns himself alive and burns the king's palace down? Right? And then look at Omri in verse 28, Right? 25, and Omri did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did more evil than all who were before him. And he walked in the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and his sins that he made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord. Verse 27, let me just jump in. Now the rest of the acts of Omri that he did and the might that he showed, are they not written in the books of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Same thing with Ahab. Again, he causes the, the death of a firstborn, right? And so we see these empty legacies. All the same result. And this is what I mean by empty legacies. Because by some ancient history books I was reading, Omri was pretty well known in the ancient world and spoken highly of. 
So don't get confused by what the world thinks. Their legacies were empty before the one who matters most, the Lord. That's why all of them are said to what? Verse 19, having done evil in the sight of who? The sight of the Lord. Understands that this is written from the, the, the sight of the Lord, right? The scripture. Their biographies are written on purpose. I don't know if you uh, could feel the flow, and you probably couldn't because there's a lot of reading and words and all that kind of stuff. But, but I, I had all that read so you could maybe feel what it sounds like. It sounds like this. They tried and worked hard and tried to be something, especially King Ahab. He wanted to be the world-class leader with the world-class city. And so worshiping Baal was a way to do that, right? To marry uh, Jezebel was a way to move up and marry up and, and be great. And, you know, you know, even like our city, we're going to be the, a world-class city in Charlotte one day. And you work so hard to do that. You got to sell out here and there and everywhere to do it. And so it's saying they did everything to be something without God being their Lord in their lives. And in the end, they didn't amount to much. They didn't do jack before the Lord. They were duds. They were flops. Get this. Their lives did not yield or produce or experience. And the scripture even teaches this in Ecclesiastes. Their lives didn't truly enjoy how and what they should and could have if their idolatry had not hollowed and starved them and emptied them out. Their lives are filled with regrets relationally, vocationally, and spiritually, the Bible is saying. And when the Bible says, isn't the rest of what they did written in the books of kings, do you know what it is saying about these kings? They did some things in their lives, but because they were not living and walking with the Lord, you can read about the rest of it in the book of who gives a crap, Right? Read about it in the book of yada, 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 right? The book of the same stuff, different king. The book of insignificant details. The book of it didn't matter in the book of eternity, book of vanity. Can't you read about it all in the book of all the stuff they thought would make them great and make them happy and make the world love them and make the world theirs, but ended up being in the fast moving, everybody leaving, nobody looking at them credits at the end of a movie. Let me be obnoxiously Christian. Try not to be all the time, even though I'm a Christian. Your life and the parts of your life given to anything other than the glory of God, the Bible says and describes as trash, as dump, right? As dung. I'm going to stop right there. A once impressive feat or device or occurrence that is worthy for the trash heap. And then the fire, and that is where the Lord is going to put it one day. I ask you, and I got to ask myself the same thing. Man, I was writing this, so I'm like, oh, Lord, what is your life really counting for in the eyes of the Lord? Because unless it's right before him, the rest of the world being impressed amounts to nothing. I don't care how many things you have on your wall, right? How many blue ribbons. How many zeros in your check? Same stuff. And after you, the people who are so impressed will find a different king and kingdom to follow and love. Let me be careful, though, because I know some of y'all are hearing it because y'all are all therapeutic. 
you are not insignificant. Let me make that clear. You are not insignificant. You are not a nothing. Okay? Because you are the handiwork of God. You get it? And God don't and never has made trash. Now, what you and I have made and made up is a different story. Idolatry is a trash factory of false and fake worth and hope, and it leaves an empty legacy, as we see, of ourselves and our hearts and of our families and of our children, of the people who depended on us, all of our relationships and parts we play in them, of our jobs, communities, and, and of our death and life after death. Idolatry just trashes that stuff before the Lord. Which brings us here. That as we are tempted to engage in harmful idolatry, God is and has been faithful over and over like he was to these kings. Same story, right? Same stuff. To call us to repentance. Sub-point A, repentance to see how God sees us. And sub-point B, to face and look to the one who's facing us. I want you to look again at verse 12 and 13. Thus Zimri destroyed all the house of Baasha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Baasha by Jehu, the prophet. For all the sins of Baasha and the sins of Elah, his son, which they sinned and which they made Israel to sin, provoking the Lord of God, Lord God of Israel, to anger with their idols. And then look at verse 34. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Sigub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. I want you to notice something from these two situations. The presence of God's prophet who brought God's word, and it means that, that there is the presence of God's prophet who brings God's word. And it means this, God had given warning. Every single, same story, y'all. They're doing idolatry, and there's never been a time where God's word is not there. God's word had come and was true and given to all generations and every administration so that these kings could be without excuse, but also able to, so they could be able to see themselves the way God saw them. As broken, it's easy to think they were great. As evil, as the object of his anger that they had, for lack of a better description, picked a fight for God over his people, especially in their case as kings. Because as we see in their stories, these kings, the Bible said, caused Israel, God's people, to sin in leading the country in this way, in their idolatry. God saw them as problems. He saw their behavior as offensive and harmful and not good for them or others and definitely not good in their relationship with him. There is no way to describe these kings based on how they ended up, but they were deluded, y'all. Like them, we tend to live and be tempted to live in the mirage of greatness. I love being able to look at the story and kind of pull back and see it for what it really is. If we were to look at your life and just pull back and see it for what it really is, are we living in a mirage of greatness? Like I alluded to earlier, we see ourselves sometimes as the king, right? As the man. 
as the queen of our queendom, right? As beating life, as you, you getting away from the pain. You're, you're beating the rap. You're fixing your, fa- your past. You're escaping the human condition and having a little fun on the way. You're thumbing your nose and giving the finger to this hard life. You being hard, not hard, hard, right? successful and ambitious. And, from, and for some of you, you're smart and sophisticated and educated and informed. And some of y'all think you woke and, and living with human freedom and swag. And some of you even might think like some of these kings and their victories and acquisitions and acceptance on the world scale that they were bringing themselves and their families up and just living the life when actually they could not see any of them themselves for what it and they really were. And repentance begins with God's call, his shout out, his wake up, his rude awakening to and by his word. That this is how and who you really are and how you look before God. You look really distant and far from his holiness, God's word is telling these kings, you are broken, you're a broken, insecure sinner who is making a mess of your life. That our idolatry is angering to the Lord. That's what these prophets were doing. And his call of repentance reveals that he is jealous as the one who truly is God in your life. He wants you to know that and see that and therefore feel that and be opened up and woke by that. And when and how does God speak and call us to repentance? How does he call us? Because I don't see like the prophets, the son and none. I love that, the son and none. Hmm. How does he call us? How does he call us to see him for who we really are on the inside and outside of starving and emptying our ways? Right now, y'all! Not because I'm special, but because the word of God's special that I'm giving you. Right now. God, will you please speak to me? Right now, he's talking, y'all. You don't need to cry. Later, you'll be like, God, if only God could say something to me. He's speaking. You just want something else. You just want to hear something else. But this same stuff, that's why, I'm the, you know, same stuff over and over. God's word is always speaking somewhere, even if it's not Christ central. There are worship services all over the city at good churches. Trust me, God's word is speaking. I got books and books and books, and Drew got more. If you need a book, I can give you a book. God is speaking. But even more than that, joining day is a clear example of what God is doing in giving you an inheritance of people who can speak to you. Some of y'all speak a different language, and I'm going to talk in you know, y'all talk in different ways and think in different ways. Man, I look at the diversity of people, and not just skin color, just class and what people have gone through and all the stories that they come up with. God is speaking and can tell you how you look before him through the relationships you have in the body of Christ, right? If God would only come, I'm sorry, y'all. If God would only come close to me, come close on Wednesday night then. Come close at community group. Come close on Sunday morning consistently. Some of you young people, God, if you're there, Look right across the hall, your parents, right there. They ain't God, but they are like the son of none, right? Speaking God's word to you. 
listen to them. When they do, we're going to do a little family devotion. Yes, it's going to suck in some kind of way. It's going to be boring, kids. We're going to have a family prayer time. Oh, Lord, here we go. I don't feel like that. Is there an online version? Is there an app? No, it's your parents. It's your mentor or your youth pastor, Connor. Yeah, sometimes, right? It's the people youth group on Wednesday. No, it's not an app. It's not colorful. Don't make a bunch of noise. It doesn't have a controller. There's no cheat codes. It's straightforward relationship. And God speaks. Here's the application here. Listen. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And his living act of true, ain't never wrong, word and Holy Spirit. Open your eyes and lives and ears. Because God is always speaking, calling our eyes and ears and um, eyes and hearts to see our lives through his word. But it's not only about you seeing things and seeing the brokenness the way God does through and by his word, but also a constant call of repentance to turn around and look to the God who sees and has already turned towards you. Um, let me read from one of these repeated king situations. Verse 30, King Ahab. And we'll talk about King Ahab a little bit more in the next couple of chapters. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Okay, I just, oh yeah, that's all I wanted to read. Okay. You know what's interesting about the way God is described here and throughout the passage, which helps define and explain what repentance is, and it happens over and over and over and over each administration for 12 years? God is seeing us, y'all. And that's a wake-up call for a lot of us. It is like who we are and are doing is being done before his eyes and face. God is always like a good father mother, never leaving his place and gaze on our lives. We may act like fools before him, but he is never fooled. This is what the prophets would tell him. Tell him we might act like Ahab is described, like it is a light thing to do really evil things, but God takes his holiness seriously. God is a heavy in our lives, always, hear this, with eyes and face towards us. And that's why he is provoked and angry in large part. These kings as leaders over his people especially are worshiping other gods and murdering folks and getting drunk all up in his face. And get this, God is faced in the right direction being God. But they, like we have, turned away, right, by, by, by looking in, into something else. We are turned and tuned out when sin comes and turned our backs and made background noise out of the divine conversation and engagement that God looking at us is offering. At our church in Charleston, we have uh, the choir loft to the right and like what we call the amen corner to the left, right? And, and they're kind of on the opposite sides. But sometimes if the youth choir is saying the same thing the same week as the adult choir, the adult choir would sit over here and the youth choir would sing, would sit in these set of pews, right? And man, I was with my friend Maurice, dude. We, I was talking. Can y'all believe it? Talking. And my dad plays the organ. And I could just see his head above the organ, right? But he also has glasses. I'm talking, and I knew I wasn't supposed to be talking, right? And I'm looking over at him. 
And because of the glare on his glasses, I couldn't tell whether he could see me. So I just assumed he couldn't see me. Or that he wasn't looking. Man, I went on talking, thinking, man, he ain't see me. He, oh, he, he too far away. Blah, 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 blah. <laughs> Cutting up. And there's this door, right? Right beside that choir loft where the youth were sitting. And I saw this hand come behind it. With... <laughs> and as soon as I saw the hand, I looked up to my dad and he wasn't there. Oh, Lord. Oh, this old school. I got a whipping right in the back of that church. <laughs> when I got back to the seats, the kids knew what was going on. They were like, <laughs> my dad was face towards me as he should have, eyeing me because he's my father. Well, God is our father, our creator, at the very least, some of you, and repentance is called to turn to stop in your behavior, to turn away from living as if he is not facing and seeing you and turn towards a God who is already facing and seeing and hear this, concerned about you. And though sin can put a glare on the Lord, making it hard to believe or think he cares about how we are behaving and seeing how idolatry is tearing us apart, repentance is call, a call to look into the face of a holy not get this, possibly disappointed, grieved, and yes, provoked to anger God. To look at him and see what our sin means only as we look on purpose. Changing the posture of your attitude and behavior so that you can see behind the glare of sin, past your blindness in this world, that God is looking and cares and is account holding me accountable like my creator, like my father. It is a call to relent and turn to look at you and feel you seeing my sin, Lord, and me seeing your grief at it. Sometimes I don't want to see. If I do something wrong, I don't want to look at my mom and dad. You know the face going to be with the down, with the frown. Sometimes I'm doing wrong when I grew up. You don't want to look at your mama because you don't want her to be looking at you. Because if you look, that's it. You're going to get beat. Some of y'all grew up with just the look. It meant you were in trouble. Some of y'all didn't get beat. You know you're going to go to timeout, okay, for some of you more progressive parenting. Do you see the Lord looking at you? He is. Do you see his face? It is described in the word. All through the pages of this Bible, are you letting him read the sin he already knows about? Are you uncovering your brokenness, undressing before him? Or are you fooling yourself and trying to trick yourself into thinking there is a glare and God just can't see you or understand or doesn't care what you're doing and who and how you are? Repentance is taking the steps, being able to change your life and change the direction of your story. But as the authors of our own broken faith, we need a new author to get us out of writing our lives in this circle of idolatry, right? Which brings us to this closing point. In the story of our lives, here's our hope. The Lord remains our only salvation. I don't care how many times you read the story or which king you read. He's still the only salvation. I don't care how bad idolatry gets. He's still the only one. 
Look at what's in the background of these four kingly reigns. At first, I missed it. And I read this chapter. I'm like, ain't nothing good here, right? Not good for the kings, right? But look at verse 8. In the 26th year of King Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Baasha, began to reign over Israel. And he reigned two years, right? Then verse 15. It says, in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri reigned seven days in Terzah. Okay? Then look at verse 23. Again, same stuff, right? Verse 23. In the 31st year of, of Asa, king of Judah, Omri began to reign over Israel. And he reigned 12 years, six years. He reigned in Terzah. Then look at verse 29. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Maybe you can tell what the writer of Kings is trying to tell us. That in the background of these broken and harmed and emptied by idolatry kingdom and kings is King Asa. The king who followed God in Judah and who broke away from idolatry, and whose kingdom remained as the standard at the time. And when it comes to how the northern kingdom would eventually be rescued from the pitfalls of, of its idolatry, the southern kingdom led by King Asa, represented by him, was their only hope of salvation. Coming out of the lineage of King Asa and coming into the story of these kings and the northern kingdom. And that is the point the writer is trying to make here. Though it may appear appear a small thing that Asa is mentioned like it is just a parallel story to help us keep our date straight because of so much ins and out with these kings it is more than that and I want y'all to try to stay awake for this little part here the mention of King Asa and the southern kingdom is more than us and aside or to the side it is King Asa's story Entering into, right? Crashing into, crashing the party, colliding, interrupting, and coming into their story. Coming into play in the story of these broken kings. The kingdom that stood at odds and war with their kingdom in idolatry, ironically, would be the kingdom that would eventually save them. If Asa points to the coming Lord Jesus and his kingdom, then it is clear what this means for us in here today. That in the story in which you and I can't seem to escape our idolatry, Jesus not only stands there, he comes into the human story, y'all. He comes into the heart and lives of broken people like you and me. He interrupts. He invades our lives with the story of his being Lord and Savior of fallen humanity. He intersects, and for some of us, he intercepts us as we are on the way to futility and darkness and nothingness and being the face of God, seeing us and awakening us to our sin and his salvation from it. He comes in to change our story. When you read this passage... It is just sad and discouraging because like many of our lives and in our struggle with idolatry and sin and this world, it has been decades and centuries of the same stuff. 
cycles of poverty, cycles of addiction, cycles of this, cycles of that. And I'm telling you, not, not only in our personal lives, in our neighborhoods, in our communities, in cities like Charlotte, right? We, we just, you know, we're number 50 out of the 50 top cities and, and people leaving poverty and rising up, right? Same stuff, y'all. I heard a guy talk about the history of West, of, of West Charlotte the other day and, and how all this stuff happened and wards and, and how you, it used to be a multi-ethnic uh, community and people living everywhere and how it changed. And same stuff. Do you know what else it means that King Asa continues to reign through the ins and outs of idolatrous northern kingdom? It means that the story of the broken kings is not the main story. <laughs> that idolatry and idolatrous results and brokenness, the cycle of it, is not the story that wins. It is not the main narrative. Their brokenness and rampant sin, yeah, man, it, it seems like a lot. The mess it causes in the world and community is but the sub-narrative to the overarching one. See, their stories are written in King Asa's story, not King Asa's in their story. That the descendant of Asa, who will one day metaphorically sit on the throne of Judah, like Asa represent, represents and points to, will change the trajectory and cycle and come to change the downward circular spiral of human defeat and destruction by sin. If you are living in the nightmare of repeated idolatry and sin, if you are suffering in the results of someone else's idolatry, maybe you are dying at someone else's expense, someone sought to please an idol, if your story is that you are too ashamed and broken and afraid to turn and confess and face a holy God, Jesus ready stands always in and behind your story to make your unrighteous story become a part of his righteous story of salvation and hope and grace. I don't care what the world is struggling in and how long it's been and how many times it seems to happen and cycle again, whether poverty or racism or fear or sexism, immorality, lack of repentance and blindness, the same stuff has and will have to meet a different king unlike anything it has been met before in Jesus Christ. And we need to know this. So that the trend of our eschatology, of, of where we're headed, of who we are, those who are the Lord's, who look to Jesus and see that Jesus looks at and visits them with forgiveness and grace, will live knowing our idols may come and go. Sometimes our allegiances and hopes wane. But God's king in his reign and save us stands forever. Every day, y'all. Every hour. And that is true for those who are believers standing in the shadow, or rather light of his grace, those who don't know where to go with their shame and guilt and idolatrous hunger. He's right there. For whatever story you got, as the hymn says, and ready, it says, and by ready, that means over our story in the divine meta-narrative, in the seed of power and reign over ours. Ready, Jesus stands to save. Full of pity, love, and power. The hymn says, I will arise and go to Jesus. Over and over for the same stuff every day, the hymn goes on. He will embrace me in his arms.
in the arms of my dear Savior, there are 10,000 charms for our same stuff. God has taken our kingdom away by grace and given us a different story and a different king in Christ. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in the repeated, repeated, repeated mess that we've made, there you stand always and ready to save. Thank you for intersecting our lives with the message of the gospel. I pray for this congregation in particular. What a call this congregation has to engage this city, a city with the same and repeated offenses of classism and racism and cycles of poverty and neglect. Lord, I pray that we would let the world know in mission that the meta-narrative, the main narrative is a king with a kingdom of grace and mercy and justice comes to change it forever. Help us to look at our city and not look low enough just to see the mayor and the governor or even the president. There's a story of a king who sits over it all. Help us remember that. In Jesus' name, amen.